0: Thank you so much um, for every person that's here today and uh, every person who's a part of this church. And I pray that you just empower us to do the things you desire for us to do. I pray you'd empower me to preach this message. I pray you'd open hearts to the words that are heard. I pray it wouldn't just be another sermon, but that you would do something significant in our spiritual journeys. There's some of us that need to trust you as Savior. There's some of us that uh, need to take the next step in our faith journey with you. We rejoice over those you've trained. You saved a lady last week. We rejoice in that. You've challenged people to grow in their faith. We rejoice in that, but don't let us go through the motions. Please work in our midst in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I realize, um, it's not lost on me, that there's a diverse audience here today, whether you're in Theater 14 or here, there are different people, different ages. We've got younger, older, everybody in the middle. Some people are single, some people are married, some people are hoping to be married, some people are dating and trying to figure out, do you like that person, all that kind of stuff. Totally understand that. But I wanna say as we get started off, those of you who are either in a couple, uh, like you're dating or engaged or married, or you've been in a couple before, think through the different kind of conversations you have as a couple. Sometimes they're casual, right? Like, how was work today? You know, what are you doing? What's going on with this? And did this thing figure it out that you were talking about before? Sometimes they're challenging, maybe what you were reading in your Bible or what your spouse was reading in their Bible or praying about and different decisions that they made. Sometimes they can be more intense conversations some people call them conflict, I'd like to call it aggressive intimacy that can take place between two people that are dating or married, and uh, you know, they can be revolve, revolve around all kinds of things. Who's going to make dinner, uh, whether you put the toilet seat down, who took garbage out, do you squeeze the toothpaste in the middle, or are you supposed to roll it up, here's the solution in our house, buy two tubes. And there's all kinds of different things that can bring these on that you might argue about. But here's what I want you to be thinking about. What goes on in your heart during that conflict? Not the conflict itself, but what is happening in your heart? And I was thinking about it for myself. We had a situation, my wife and I, a blessing from the Lord situation that came uh, not too long ago. I just had lunch with one of our elders, a good friend of mine, Alan Folkrod, and we were pulling out of this parking lot. And my wife would, had been in the same parking lot. She actually came in when we were wrapping up our lunch to eat lunch, and she called me on my phone as I was pulling out of this parking lot. Now, one thing that I've just, just from telling this story, I think about it, is that I have this weird ring on my phone for my wife. One time I was just sitting around at the house, I put ringtones on, I put a love song on for when my wife calls. Here's what's actually happened in my life she only calls when I'm with another man. So it's always like, ah, oh, it's my wife, I promise. Like, it's such a weird, or I'll be in the locker room at the gym, and it's like, ah, oh, gee, like, there's always men around. But she calls, and I see it, so I know it's her, so I don't ignore it, I answer the phone, she says, I've got a flat tire. Honestly, at least the way I remember the story, in my heart I thought to myself, I can be her knight in shining armor, this'll be great, and I'm so messed up in my motives, and Ellen gets to see me be the hero, this'll be perfect. <laughs> And I was hoping that we would pull up and my wife would have, like, a low tire. You know what I mean? It's not, like, on the rim, but it's low, and we could drive it to a gas station, put some fix-a-flat in it, pump it up, and and she'll be like, you helped me so much, and, you know, it would be perfect. That's not what happened. We pulled up. Her car was pulled out. It was on the rim. Now, I haven't changed a tire in about a decade. I look at my friend Alan. Those of you who don't know him, he's wearing dress slacks and shoes, and I thought, this brother ain't gonna help. Like, this (laughs) this ain't gonna help. So... He calls AAA. He's a AAA member. I call my insurance company. Neither one of them help. We're trying to figure out everything we can do to not change the tire. It starts to become evident that I'm going to have to change the tire. And so then I start looking, where where is even your spare tire on your car, Shannon? I couldn't find it. And so I went over to my car, which is also a Toyota. We have two Toyotas. I pulled a donut out of the back of my car and figured, well, this will work. So Alan pulls the owner's manual out, and he starts reading... So we can even find the jack for the car. We find the jack, he tells me how to assemble it. We get the car lifted up, which I think is good progress. It's taken us about an hour at this point. Let me share something with you. <laughs> Personal vulnerability here. Some people have different things that are their issue, right? Like money or you know, your reputation or different things like that. For me, uh, one of my things is my time. And so I did want to serve my wife. I really did. I do love her. But this wasn't what I had planned for my schedule for that day, and now it's becoming far more inconvenient than it was before. And we get the car lifted up, and I remember we jacked it up. I hadn't said any snarky comments to my wife at this point, probably because of Alan's presence. (laughs) But this stuff's starting to conflict in my heart, and then I see the tire has not one but two holes in it. And I mean holes, not leaks, not like a nail got driven over. There are rips in the side of the tire, and that's thick rubber. And so I said to my wife, what did you do?" And she said, I hit the curb when I was pulling into the parking spot. I said, but there's two holes here. She says, and when I was backing back out of the parking spot. <laughs> Alan could sense that the tension was starting to get high at that moment, he was very gracious. He decided to start taking some pictures. So I brought a couple with you, with me. That was me, <laughs> discovering the issue. And here is my wife and I discussing the issue. Sorry, there it is. Alan brought some levity to the situation It didn't change what was happening in my heart. So he started to tell me after that point how to take the tire off. And so there's a pattern you have to do, like an algorithm to get five bolts off the thing, and so he starts telling me how to do that. I do the thing, I take the tire off the car, I'm getting sweaty. I don't like sweating either, by the way. So I'm getting sweaty, time's going by, I grab the donut from my car, I go to put it on, it doesn't fit. Please, someone write a letter to Toyota and ask them why all donuts don't fit Toyotas. But it doesn't fit. So I take that donut off. It's like now we gotta find her donut. It's hidden underneath the back passenger seat on the car. It's like a wiretap from the government underneath the car to even find this thing. And then I remember I've been getting safety recalls for a couple years from Toyota on the cable to this, which I always think it's the cable to the spare tire. Who cares? All of a sudden I care in this moment. Alan tells me how to, there's like a crank system to lower this thing down. We get the tire off. And finally, we're well past an hour at this point. I'm sweating. We get the donut on the car, We tighten the lug nuts. I feel like I've accomplished something. Start to lower the car with the jack. And we all notice simultaneously as the tire starts to hit the ground that it is also flat and starts to go down as that moment. And let me tell you, I had things that were entering my mind and they were not from Jesus. But I do love my wife. Here's the other problem. I also love myself, and I'm selfish. I had a conflicted heart. And we drove, I drove that car on the flat donut uh, to the gas station. We pumped it up, went over to Discount Tire. It ended up costing money, too, and t- more time. And all of a sudden, we got a new tire, got it all figured out. It was done. And we didn't get in a huge blow. Alan told me afterwards, I was just there to keep the peace. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that what was happening in my heart was good. Now, outwardly, I did the right stuff. Inwardly, what was happening was a conflicted heart. Can you identify? Ever been there? And sometimes it happens, we have com- it's a conflict in our heart when there's two things that are both true that are happening that are contradictory to one another and they're happening at the same time. Like, here's some easy examples I want to be smart, I don't like studying. I'd like to eat healthy, but I only like food that tastes good. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, it doesn't work. I want to be in good shape, I don't like the pain of working out, I want to, I want to obey God, but sin is very attractive, it's crouching at my door, and it wants to have me, see the conflicts, if you can identify with any of those, then you should have no problem connecting with the passage that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 2, as we talk about a conflicted love. And what's happening is that Jesus is having a conflict. The conflict's been building for several weeks now. We haven't talked about it as conflict, but there's been multiple conflicts with Jesus and the religious leaders. And what's happened is, it started back in Mark chapter two and verses one through 12. Remember when the guy gets dropped from the ceiling and he's not able to walk, but instead of healing his legs, the first thing that Jesus does, he says, "Your sins are forgiven." And there's some religious leaders that are sitting in the front row. And remember, they were upset. They're rightfully upset because they don't think that Jesus is God. And anyone, the only person who can forgive sins is God. And so they're mad at Jesus at that point. But they didn't realize that Jesus is God. And Jesus tells the man to walk out so he can prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he puts that love on display. And then what happens next is he calls a guy, Levi, who's one of the outsiders. He's a tax collector. He hangs around with prostitutes and sinners and other tax collectors. And remember, the religious guys were really upset they came up to some of Jesus' disciples and says, why is it that he eats with these kinds of people? He's a rabbi. He's not supposed to be with sinners. The conflict is building. Then last week we saw the issue of fasting, where they're arguing about fasting, because we saw that the Pharisees, they fasted in order to draw the attention of other people, so they could get some likes on Facebook, and so they could get affection from God, so they could have, earn God's love, to get some kind of merit. And we talked about how you can't earn God's love. Well, this week they have two conflicts, and I put the two passages together in one sermon because they, they revolve around the same theme, which is the Sabbath. But I'm going to tell you right now, this isn't really about the Sabbath. I'm going to read the first conflict uh, together right now in verses 23 through 28, and then the next one is in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. And so our first point will come from verses 23 through 28 as we see this conflict that Jesus has, but what Jesus is really in conflict with is their hearts. Let's look at it. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain, which according to the Pharisees was a violation of the law, but not according to the Bible. In fact, the Bible had a specific provision for this very act in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25. You want to look it up on your own later. But the Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus didn't say, well, they weren't. Read your Bibles. But he does mock them. He says, have you never read remember these are the experts in the law like it's their life to study the bible this would be like saying have you ever heard the story of david and goliath he says have you never read what david did when his companions were hungry and in need in the days of abathar the high priest he and he starts to retell the story he entered the house of god and he ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for the priest to eat so David broke the law, and he wasn't condemned, which is implied that it was okay. And he gave some to his companions. He overrode the legality, the technicalities of the civil law for the sake of the benefit of other people, and he was David. And he's saying to these guys, aren't I at least as great as David? He's confronting him with this person. Then he said to them this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys have flipped it around. And Jesus is the one who made it. And that's what he says next. So the son of man himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what he's saying to them is this thing that is ultimate to you, that you're so sensitive about, the Sabbath, the thing that is so important to you. I'm Lord of that. So can I be Lord of you? The conflict that's happening here, and you can look at it, and you can look at the one that happens in verses 1 through 6 too, and it also revolves around the Sabbath idea, and there there's a guy that's healed, and here it's about some food that gets eaten. In both places, there's work that's done. Is it doing good? Is it doing evil? And there's all these details that are in there, but it's not really about the details. It's like when you're married and you get in an argument about the toothpaste tubes, who squeezes and who rolls. Do we have any squeezers here, by the way? Are there any other squeezers other than my wife? <laughs> Hank, really? Anyway, you guys drive me nuts. Anyway. Um any <clears throat> When you get to fight about that, I think we all know you're really fighting about other stuff. Like, do you hear me? Do you care about my needs? Are you being selfish? Can we communicate? Like, there's, real, there's other stuff that's happening that's real. You're not really arguing about toothpaste tube. This is a toothpaste tube. Who cares about toothpaste tube? Buy two. I'm telling you, it's the tip of the day. They're not really arguing about the Sabbath here. There's a lot of stuff about the Sabbath. I'm going to teach some more details about the Sabbath. You've got to understand that in order to see the passage. However... The argument's not about the Sabbath, it's about who's Lord of the Sabbath. And it's not even really about who's just Lord of the Sabbath, it's about who should be Lord. One scholar says it like this The clash with authority is not over the rules, but over who rules. That's why Jesus ends that first confrontation with I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying to them, I'm God, I'm the Lord. And I should be your Lord. And what we see here is not really a conflict over the Sabbath. It's a conflict over what's going on in their hearts. And what Jesus does is he confronts conflicted hearts. Jesus confronts conflicted hearts. Because what a conflicted heart really is, is a heart that's not sure who's Lord. It's not sure who rules and reigns. It's the same as in my own heart. I love my wife, I love myself. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Who's the one that rules and that reigns? Here's what it is to be Lord. It's ultimate. The one that's Lord is the one that's supreme. The one that's Lord is the one that dictates how the rest of your life goes. And so if you mess with the Lord, guess what? Then it messes up the rest of your life. But what happens for many of us, especially as believers in Jesus Christ, is that who is Lord oftentimes rotates, it changes. It reminds me of a game that I used to play when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in Michigan. I don't know if you ever played this game here in North Carolina or not, but it's called King of the Hill. King of the Mountain. Um, I remember as a kid, the way that we played is that when it would snow a whole bunch, the snow plows would come around and there'd be these big piles of snow on the sides of the road and we'd go to the bus stop or whatever and some kid would climb up on top of the mountain of snow and he'd be like, king of the hill! And everybody else would be like, nope. (laughs) And we'd start fighting and wrestling. And so that kid stands up there then somebody pushes him from behind and he's off the hill. The next kid's up there. Until somebody starts wrestling with him. And while those two are wrestling, somebody bumps them off. And they're like, I'm king of the hill. Then somebody throws a snowball on that guy's face. And he's like, hey, you know, push him off. And it keeps rotating which kid is at the top of the hill until the bus comes. Like, it's just what happens. Just keep fighting and wrestling. And here's what happens in our hearts oftentimes. We know Jesus should be Lord. That is the fundamental command and confession of every Christian. Jesus, you can't even be a Christian and not call Jesus Lord. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead then you'll be you can't even be saved if you don't call upon Jesus to be Lord this is a couple verses later in verse 13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and then incredible passage in Philippians chapter 2 He talks about your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. He talks about Christ's sacrifice. He became obedient, even obedient to the cross. And then there's this doxology in verses 9 through 11. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what do they say? That every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is Lord that he rules, that he reigns, that he's ultimate, that he's supreme, that he's the one who makes the world go round, that he's the one that is king of your world, that everything should rotate around him. And we know that's true as believers. But what oftentimes happens is we bow our knee to Jesus. And then maybe soccer is Lord. And baseball or sports or dance or whatever it is. And then maybe you start dating somebody and they become Lord. And then whatever ends up coming next, education, reputation, and you kind of go through life. But then maybe something bad happens. You lose your job. You do bad on a test. Somebody breaks up with you. And so you surrender back to Jesus. And je- it's like that game, King of the Hill. It's like they're just rotating. Who's at the top? Who's on the king? Who's the king? Who's Lord? And for many believers, this us be real candid, Lord is money. And I'll prove this real quick. I'll start talking about money and people will be upset. (laughs) How much do we talk about money as a church? Those of you who've been here for a while. Not a lot. We've done it. You go through all the sermon archives. Listen to how much we talk about money. If I start preaching about money, guess what will happen? All the church wants is my money. And then some people will actually leave. They've left before. We've done it. Do you know why? Because you've just put your finger on their God. That's what happens. You mess with someone's Lord that messes with their life. Who's Lord? For the guys in this passage, like for an American Christian, it's money, it was Sabbath. And so while we understand, we might know some things about Sabbath and we should not work and we should take a day of break, all this stuff, it does not have the supreme importance to us that it had to them. And so maybe some of you might think about, what would be like if Jesus started to confront their money? He's, confer- he's putting his finger right on their hearts on a sensitive situation try and think about try and, we just read that story they're walking through the field who's walking through the fields? Jesus and his disciples are they all walking together I doubt the Pharisees are hanging out with you because think about who Jesus' disciples are at this point it's not this clean cut 12 guys Okay, that's next week he's going to call the 12 apostles out of all these people that are following him but who's following him it's Peter and Andrew, James and John, we got them at the very beginning. And then Levi, who's a tax collector. And then Levi's friends are probably there, so some prostitutes and some other different tax collectors and other sinners, people that aren't allowed to come worship. I doubt the Pharisees are walking with them. And so the way I picture this story is Jesus walking along, and maybe he's teaching, maybe they're just on their way to the synagogue. And some people start grabbing some grain out of the field, out of some other people's fields, which is a provision that's allowed in Deuteronomy. They start eating it, and then out pops a Pharisee. What are they doing? And I think, are you a stalker? How creepy that you're even popping up at this moment, is is how I imagine this story. And you're concerned about what we're eating, which, by the way, it might have been wheat. Maybe they were gluten-free Pharisees. I don't know. They pop out. They're ticked. They're upset about this deal. Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He then says, don't you know what David did? Teacher of the law, expert in the law. And the reality is they knew the story. They didn't understand the point of the story. What Jesus is saying to them is, aren't I at least as great as David? In order to understand the conflict that's happening here, we've got to learn some stuff about the Sabbath. You've got to understand what the Sabbath actually was. The Sabbath was a gift. It was meant to be a blessing. It was part of the law that was given in Exodus chapter 20. You can read about it on your own. Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11 in the Ten Commandments. It's one of the commandments that's given. They shouldn't work on the last day. It's it's, it's a sign to other people that you're holy because it's a sign. Think about what signs do. We've got signs today. If you came in today and you saw the worship sign of the bridge kids, it was telling you which way to go. Live venue versus video venue. You saw the directional sign, maybe, you know, one-way street. Don't turn this way. Signs point us to something. And what the Sabbath was was a sign. And it was given to them after they've been in bondage to Egypt. They were told, just as the Father rested on the seventh day, I well, want you to rest on the seventh day. Don't do any work. Why? When you're in bondage, can you rest? When you're a slave and someone else is telling you what to do, you don't get to rest. What he's saying is that you, you're, you, because God has victory, because God has set you free, it was actually a sign of freedom, ironically, then now you have the freedom to Rest. And I want you to rest to show you're different than the other nations. I want it to be a sign to them that you're holy. It points to the covenant that we have with each other. We read in the New Testament that's actually a shadow that points to Christ. And what we talk about as a Sabbath oftentimes as Christians is not the same thing that was given to Israel. You know, you'll hear sometimes Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, different people will talk about the Sabbath is Saturday. They're right. It was Saturday in the Old Testament. The early church debated about do Christians even have to have a Sabbath? And they started to celebrate the Resurrection Day instead. That's what we do on Sunday time of celebration the principles still there those rest it was a gift from god intended to be a blessing what the pharisees had done is they had done a natural thing they studied the bible they're experts in the law god says not to work so what is work and then they started to define everything that was work and they turned what was a blessing into a burden with an almost endless list of things you could not do on the sabbath for instance if someone was hurt in the next story we're going to see there's a guy who's got a shriveled hand If their life is not threatened, you're not supposed to help them. Which, think about how twisted that is. When Jesus is asked to summarize the whole law, what does he say? Love God, love people. They've got this messed up. Well intended, though. These people didn't mean to create a burden, but they had. They came with all kinds of rules. Uh, For example... They wanted you to not even be able to do things that could tempt you to possibly work. You weren't allowed to bathe on the Sabbath. Here's why you couldn't bathe on the Sabbath. Because it's, poss- it's not that bathing was so much work. It's that you could spill water out of where you're bathing, and then you'd have to wipe it up, which would be washing the floor. You couldn't carry, if you were a scribe, you couldn't carry an ink pen, a pen, that you would write, a writing utensil, on the Sabbath, because you might be tempted to write. If you were a tailor, you couldn't carry a a sewing pin because you might be tempted to sew. If you were a student, you couldn't carry books because you might be tempted to study. (laughs) As silly as that may sound. To illustrate, and this is how we roll at our house, pink soccer ball here, they actually had a rule. I want you to see how silly this is. They had a rule that if an object got tossed in the air, you could catch it with one hand, but you couldn't toss it with one hand and then catch it with the other hand because that's work. So see? Easy. Easy. Not easy. (laughs) That's how ridiculous this became for people. And I'll just share with you, because I like to use multiple illustrations, I'll share with you (laughs) a list of things that they said to give you an idea of what's happening here. You cannot carry a dried fig or anything that was heavier than a dried fig. You couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath. You can't kill an insect on the Sabbath. You can't light or put out a candle on the Sabbath. No selling on the Sabbath, no bathing like I mentioned on the Sabbath. You can't move furniture because, remember, their floors are dirt, and if you move a chair, it could leave a rut in the ground, which would be like plowing. (laughs) Silly. Women are not permitted to look in the mirror. I don't know why it's women specifically. I didn't write these things. Don't send me an email because a woman might be tempted to pluck a gray hair. Apparently, guys didn't care about gray hairs. Women are not allowed to wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. You can't wash your clothes, can't dye wool, can't shear sheep, can't spin wool, can't plow a field, can't reap a harvest, can't bind sheaves, can't ground flour, can't knead dough, can't hunt a deer, can't prepare meat. Also, you couldn't travel more than 1,999 steps, which when I read that I thought, this is before the Fitbit. (laughs) And I thought, and this is maybe just me, it'd be more work to count 1,999 steps than it would be to take 1,999 steps. And I also then thought, if I were Jesus, and this guy pops out of the field and says, what are they doing eating? I'd probably be like, how many steps away from your house are you? Ooh, see? It's like Sabbath rule ninja. But instead, what Jesus does, he says, you don't get the point. You've taken what was intended to be a blessing. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. I created this thing. He's saying I'm God to them. And you've turned it into a burden. No wonder you don't want God to be, you say the right things and they say that they're wanting to follow God, but no wonder people wouldn't want God to be Lord of their lives if they think that God's heaping burdens on people. When you look at the scriptures, what you see is an accurate picture of God, but you see a lot of people that have an inaccurate picture of God. And one of the reasons why we're so conflicted in our hearts is because we have an inaccurate picture of God. What these guys are actually showing, these experts in the law, and what Jesus is pointing out is their ignorance of who God truly is. And so when the psalmist says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. That's right. But if he's there with us to heap burdens on us, why when we're in the valley of the shadow of death? That's when, like, you lose a loved one. That's when your relationship falls apart. That's when the financial crisis happens. That's when bad news takes place. Why would God being with us be comforting if God is there to burden us with more stuff? When Moses says, I can't speak, and God says, no, I'm going to be with you. Why is that comforting? When we're given the impossible command, go make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the fathers, that's impossible. We call it the great commandment. It's the impossible commission. The great commission, impossible, you can't do it. Below, I'm with you. you give me this impossible thing. Why is that? You're going to just heap more burdens up? Because he's not, let me tell you something about God. He's not there to be a burden to you. He is there to be a blessing. God is for you, and he wants to take your burden from you. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 11, if anyone is weary and burdened, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Do you know who's there? We know for a fact Pharisees are there because he has this conf- this confrontation we're reading about in Matthew's book, Matthew chapter 12. But in Matthew chapter 11, he says, all who are weary and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. But then he goes on Think about the rest of these words. Take my yoke, my work upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble because you need to know me, my person. Then you'll trust what I'm saying. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest, not like a nap. Rest for your souls. Not that, you, not that it's not daylight savings time, you get an extra hour of sleep. This is soul rest. Think about how tired these men would be from trying to keep all these rules. It's hard to convert as a Pharisee, but people do it, Nicodemus, Paul. And then the next verse. For my yoke is easy, really, and my burden is light. If you've been a Christian for like 20 minutes, you know Jesus commands some tough stuff. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. If anyone wants to save his life, you have to lose your life. If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy to follow me. Rich young ruler, you go sell all your stuff because you can't have anyone else as Lord, and then you can follow me. That's hard stuff. Does Jesus give hard commands? Yes. Are they burdensome? No, not when he's Lord. Let me explain to you why. A passage that helps illustrate this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It says, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And, don't miss this last part, his commands are not burdensome. Are they hard? Yes. Are they burdensome? No. Why? Because of the one that you love. It's, you're, it's not that the command, it's not the thing that you're doing is easy. It's the why you do it that makes it not burdensome. It's because of your great love for him. When you have a great love for him, guess what happens? You stop thinking just about this place. You keep gaining an eternal perspective. You realize you have a father. You're not doing those things to earn his love like we talked about last week. It's not that if I just keep this as long as I don't do this, he's going to zap me if I carry a pencil uh, on Sabbath day. No. He loves you. You can't make him love you more. You can't make him love you less. But because of your love for him, read the verse, because of your love for him, that's why you do the commands. That's why you're yourself. That's why you follow him. Because you trust him and his person, that he's humble, that he's gentle, that he loves you. It's like with my wife. The reason why I was conflicted is because of my love for myself. My, but my love for my wife, oftentimes I do things I don't like to do. I don't like take, who likes taking out the garbage? Who likes doing some of the All of you do this. But you do it, and you can do it, and it not be a burden because of the person you're doing it for. And that's what it's supposed to be like with our relationship with God. As our Father, as our eternal, heavenly, perfect Father who gives good gifts and wants to bless us, we want to obey Him. He changes our desires. That's what ends up happening. It's not that the commands become easy, it's that we want to do what He says because we trust Him and we believe that that's what's actually best. So the stuff can be t- incredibly tough, like sharing the gospel. That's a tough command. What if they reject you? What if they don't like you? What if they're not your friend anymore? Or what if, in some situations, You actually are persecuted. I was reading about a persecuted guy this week, and he's a perfect illustration of not being burdened, but also still experiencing difficulty. His name is uh, Farshid, and uh, he was arrested for sharing the gospel in the Middle East. And while he was in prison, he wrote this letter to his family. He said, recently I heard about a letter which was published on the Internet on behalf of me about a part of my suffering that I went through during this time since I was imprisoned in December 2010. Although I did not write the letter, which I thought, who decided to write a letter as if they were this guy? Why did you do that? At any rate, somebody did. said, while I didn't write the letter, it tells the truth. The suffering that was described is suffering that I've experienced. But I'd like to tell you that after all the things that have happened to me, it'd be a shame for me to speak about my suffering. He doesn't want to bring glory to himself. Listen to what he says. How can I complain about my suffering when my brothers and sisters are paying a high price for their faith all over the world? he starts to list some. He said, I recently heard about many people killed in front of a church in Pakistan. I also heard of a a young sister in Christ who shared the gospel and then lost her entire family for sharing the gospel and she's still willing to return and share the gospel. How can I complain about my suffering when our dear brother Hayek gave his life and was killed with more than 20 knife stabs to preach to sinners like me? And what about our dear brother, Dibaj, who spent nine years and 27 days in prison? was finally martyred after that much suffering. He's saying, how can I complain the sufferings in my life when this is happening? And he says this, how can I complain about my suffering when I think about our lovely brother Sidman, who had four precious children and was martyred? Our dear brother, I don't know how to pronounce these names, Michaelian and Ravabax, whose blood is still crying out from the land of Iran in heaven. And finally, what about the apostle Paul, who was many times in prison, suffered countless beatings, was stoned and often near death, but served the Lord with all of his heart but after all this, Paul says, and he says from the Corinthians, he says, "This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, what a trust in his Father. Because he's Lord, he lifts the burden, and the law can actually even be a blessing. Let me read you these couple of psalms in Psalm verse 40. Or chapter 40, verse 8. He says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I want it. I desire it. Psalm 119. If your law, verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's like the law was the thing that actually lifted some of the burden. Come to me. All who are weary. And then there are people that profess that they're trying to do that and they're keeping the law and they're serving God, but it's not reality in their heart. They have a conflicted heart and Jesus speaks to that too in Matthew chapter 15 when he says Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And praise me with your lips but your hearts are far from me. You hypocrites. That's a hypocrite. A hypocrite's not someone who just says something and does something else. A hypocrite's not someone who just lacks integrity. The hypocrite is the person who, it's like what they say they believe is not reality because you can see how they behave. Anybody here identify? That's a conflicted heart. Jesus confronts a conflicted heart. Because when you have a conflicted heart, that means Jesus isn't Lord. You know what else Jesus confronts? He confronts a stubborn heart. Because Jesus clashes with a stubborn heart. He confronts the conflicted heart. He clashes with a stubborn heart. And that's what we see in the next encounter. We'll go through it quickly. in Chapter 3, just read verses 1 through 6 with me. Another time, probably the same day, he went into the synagogue, probably the same synagogue he's already been in in Capernaum when we were in chapter 1, where he's already done miracles, cast out the demon, killed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? That was on a Sabbath. No one complained. Look what happens here. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, talking about the Pharisees, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, which there's a lot of things that are interesting about that. First of all, they're not there to worship, they're there to watch Jesus, Secondly, they don't even, they've got enough faith to believe he can do a miracle. They believe in his power. He could do the miracle. They want to know if he would do the miracle. But they don't care about the guy. They don't care about the miracle. And no matter what happens, whether he heals him or doesn't heal him they're not going to believe in Jesus. They're there to trap Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually do any work. He just says some words, by the way. Watch this. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, not the man with the shriveled hand, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now remember, Jesus can read their minds. Watch what's about to happen. They don't say anything. They remain silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. But then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees, remember the question he asked, lawful to do evil or good on the Sabbath? You're so concerned about the Sabbath, right? Is it lawful to take life or to save life? No one thought it was lawful to kill. But look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began on the Sabbath, began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus looks at their hearts. They can't even see their hearts because their hearts are so stubborn. Jesus clashes with stubborn hearts. So what's a stubborn heart? You've got the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version, that was the NIV I was just reading from, then it says a hard heart. I've heard that before. Stiff neck, hard heart. What does that mean? Oftentimes, as Christians, we think it just means outright rebellion towards God, like we're shaking our fist towards God. That is not all it means. In fact, if you keep reading through Mark, you can read on your own. Mark chapter 6, verse 52, Mark chapter 8, verse 17, in your own study, look at who he's speaking to there. Why are your hearts so hard? You have such hard hearts. It's his disciples. And so some people have hard hearts. For instance, people have been coming to our church for years and years and years and haven't trusted Christ. But they've seen people trust Christ. They've seen people set free from addictions. They've seen people healed. They've seen the power of God. But it doesn't change their heart. Why not? Unwilling to change. That's what a hard heart is. Here's the scary part. We can be a disciple of Jesus, walking with Jesus one moment. Like the disciples in chapter 6, 52, and 8, 17. He's just fed the 5,000. He's just done this thing. Walking on water. And then we don't get it the next because the lordship's continually changing. It's rotating. And when you have a hard heart, you're not listening. You have a hard heart, you're not sensitive to him. When you have a hard heart, you're not unwilling to change. And that was the problem for these Pharisees. Whether he heals this guy or doesn't heal this guy, they're not going to change. Hard heart means unwilling to change. Think about the opposite of heart. It's soft. It's pliable. It's teachable. No matter what Jesus does here, they will not change. It's like a a couple tribes that I read about in the Sudan a couple weeks ago. They pull all their teeth out, the front teeth on their their faces, the bottom six teeth and the front two teeth. And the reason why is because at one point, uh, their tribes both had lockjaw. And that was how you fed people. You had to pull the teeth out, top two teeth, bottom six teeth. And what happened is it caused their chins to sink in. Um, they all speak with a speech impediment because of it, and caused multiple problems. It was a painful procedure. They used a fish hook. They would pull kids' teeth out just, to, just in case they' get lockjaw. jaw. But it became such a regular part of their tribe that even though lockjaw is no longer a problem, far gone in the past, they still pull everybody's teeth out. They pull the front two teeth out, they pull the bottom six teeth out. It's painful. cause problems, can lead to infections. Why? It's what we do. You ask them questions about it, and they can come up with reasons. Oh, we think that this is one of the things they said when they were being surveyed about this. We think that people with front teeth look like cannibals. Arr, scary people. We like the way that the lisp sounds for people who don't have teeth. They come up with reasons, but there's no reason for them to do this thing that they're doing. What does the scripture say about us with sin as a dog returns to its vomit? How. How foolish is it? If you ask somebody the question, heaven or hell, pick. Which one do you pick? Heaven or hell? Describe heaven, describe hell. Jesus says hell's a real place, eternal. You can go, my friends are there. Yeah, they're there. They're in isolation, being tormented and tortured forever. Who picks that? No one picks that. Why are the Pharisees mad? Who's mad about people being healed? No one. Let me answer that. No one. They're not mad about the healing. They're not even mad about the teaching. They're not even mad about the Sabbath rules. They're mad because he threatens their authority. We don't want to submit to another authority. You know what that's called? Stubborn heart. Jesus clashes with a stubborn heart. You see, with other people, why does someone who's in an abusive relationship go to another abusive relationship, go to another abusive relationship? Why do they do that? I remember when we started partnering with Women at Risk International, um, which if you look into your card, you know, you fill the card out. We make a donation to them. They rescue women out of human trafficking, and Becky McDonald was in charge of it, was sharing with us how these girls, they're they're trapped. They're sold into this thing. They don't want to be a part of it. They're made to do things, horrible things they don't want to do with men they don't even know, and then we rescue them out, and what we found when we first started doing this was they go back because it's what they know. And some of us, that's what we do. Some of us were like the tribe, we're unwilling to change. Some of us were like those girls, that's all we know. And Jesus is saying, there's another way. Come to me, all who are, you come to me. And what the ministry ended up doing is they started training the girls another way to live, connecting them to Jesus, transforming their lives. Here for these guys, it doesn't matter what they see, they knew Jesus had the power to heal this guy. Some of you, you've seen, we had somebody trust Christ last week. We have people trust Christ regularly. We have people trust Christ in this church unlike any church I've ever been a part of. It's awesome. Some of you will see that every week forever and not trust Christ. How? It's a hard heart. Some of you, you hear testimonies. people set free from addictions, marriages reconciled. Every other week we have a celebratory recovery testimony. It can be everything from codependency to cocaine addictions. And you hear God, see God do this amazing stuff. Why not you? Why aren't you being changed? But the answer is that you're not being changed and it's a hard heart. Let's think about what Jesus does in this passage. There's this guy there with the shriveled hand. Apparently people knew that he was there. We don't know if the Pharisees planted him. We know they don't care about him. Maybe he was really insecure about his hand, hid it you know, in his robe or in his pocket or whatever. But apparently it was obvious that he had the shriveled hand because Mark just speaks about it like everybody knew this guy had a shriveled hand. I'm trying to imagine being the guy with the shriveled hand. I remember in elementary school, I went to school with a kid who was in a severe fire. He was burned really bad, and it was obvious. And when he put his hands out, his hands were like mittens. They had been melted together. Think about how hard it would be to be different in that setting, to stand out. And you look at what Jesus says to this guy. Stand up in front of everyone. Literally, that's a modernization of this translation. Literally in the Greek, it says, get up in the middle where everybody can see you. Now when they went to pray, they'd see his hand because they'd pray and they'd put their hands up about shoulder height, palms out. And why was it shriveled? We don't know if he had an accident. Maybe he was burned in a fire. Maybe he was born that way with a deformity. We don't know. We don't know much detail about this guy's life. But think about what it was like to be this guy and be told by Jesus. He doesn't initiate this. He's not coming to Jesus to be healed. Jesus says to this guy, Jesus could have said, meet me out back. We'll keep this on the down low and I'll have to deal with the Pharisees. He doesn't do that. Jesus says this guy in front of all these people, you stand up in the middle. I'm going to guess this guy's personality is one where he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself because of his shriveled hand. So think about the courage it takes for him to stand up. This is a picture of someone who submits to Jesus' lordship. I trust you. I don't want to do what you're about to tell me to do. I wasn't seeking this, but you're leading, so I'm going to go. This guy steps up, And then Jesus addresses the guys with the hard hearts, the stubborn hearts, and it says that he looks at them, he's angry. Do you know why he's angry? Because he's angry at sin, because sin is the thing that keeps you from being reconciled with him. He's angry at their stubborn hearts. But he's not only angry. Did you see there's two emotions there? He's angry, and some of your translations say he has sorrow. It says here, his, his heart is deeply distressed. It's interesting, the tenses are different in those too, in the Greek. It's when he says he looks in anger, it's a momentary tense. It's the aorist. And it says when he's deeply distressed, it's continuous. I'm offering this gift. How do you not take it? How do you not know receive? Why do you think something else is better than me being Lord? How can you be conflicted in your hearts? You know what I've done. You've seen the power that I have, and I can do it in your life. Why are you letting something else rule your life? Deeply distressed, angry at the stubbornness one of the few places in scripture where we see that he's angry he does get angry then he says to the man stretch out your hand another act of faith by the way i imagine he's standing there with it kind of hidden stood up in the middle but stretch out your hand and he heals the withered hand what a picture of the gospel for when they plot his death in verse six that's going to lead to jesus stretching out his hands on the cross to heal our withered souls that are separated from him because of our own sin, the very thing that makes him angry. How ironic that he asked the question, is it okay on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And they couldn't answer either because either one traps them because it's work, right? He's saying you got a messed up view of the Sabbath because you got a messed up view of God. Is it okay to kill or to save life? Well, it was okay to save life. It's never okay to kill, but Jesus knows what they're thinking, and they're going to go plot his death. Which then he's going to use the greatest crime and the greatest sin of all time for the greatest good, your salvation. So why have a conflicted heart? You see, what's actually required of you is the same thing of this man, to humble yourself before him and to follow him. Is it easy? No. Is it burdensome? No, not when you have a love relationship with the Father that loves you and you understand he's for you, he wants to bless you and not be a burden to you. So will you surrender to him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you like the man in this passage with the withered hand. We're just trusting you to lead us. Will you lead us? I pray for those who don't know your son as their Savior, that you lead them to salvation in this very moment. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, then acknowledge your sin before Him. That shouldn't be a huge confession. We all have sin. To acknowledge your sin before Him and then ask Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to be Lord of your life, that He will be supreme. Call upon Him like that verse I read earlier, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If anyone believes in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they'll be saved. So if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, confess Jesus is Lord Say so you believe that he died on the cross for your sins. And trust him as your savior. And Those of us who know you as savior Jesus, I come as one who has a conflicted heart. And I confess that. And I just ask you, I want you to be Lord. I want you to guide me. And some of us, we need to confess sin. You feel free to confess sin. Whatever you have to confess to him. You talk to the Lord. He'll meet with you in this moment. And we're gonna worship. We're gonna sing a song here in a minute. And when I say amen, if you're not done praying, you feel free to keep praying. Father, I pray, I pray for those who are believers, who are followers of yours, who've called upon you to be Lord, but then we let other stuff get on the throne of our lives. God, that we repent, we turn to you. We don't want to have a stubborn heart. We want to be pliable. I pray for those who have stubborn hearts. God, I pray you'd break their hearts. I pray you'd make them as miserable as they could possibly be on this earth until they turn to you. We know you can do it. You did it with Paul when you met him on the road. You did it with Nicodemus and his curiosity of meeting you at night. Father, I pray for those who have been coming to our church for years and have yet to trust you as Savior that right now will be their moment. I pray these things in Jesus' name.